I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Lindsay Marr to our program today. She's an engineering professor at Virginia Tech with expertise in airborne transmission of viruses. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, professor, what do you think the American people and anyone listening to this should, should most know so far about airborne transmission of COVID? The virus is transmitting through the air, and if you are going out into public in a public building that's indoors, you should always wear a mask, you should avoid crowds, you should maintain your distance, and if you need to be in there for a long time, um, you should try to do everything possible to ensure the building has good ventilation. Have we determined, based on the science, what masks are most effective both in the hospital settings and for lay people who may have to be inside or even outdoors as uh, has been mandated in a number of cities and, and localities. I lost one of the words in there. Can you uh, restate? Of course. Have we determined what kinds of masks are most effective in preventing airborne transmission? Yes, we know that for Healthcare workers wearing an N95 is most protective because it's able to block almost all uh, viruses and droplets in all, all sizes. For the public, it's less important to have an N95 because they're not in such high-risk situations, not around infected people all the time. And in that case, it seems that cloth masks, especially if they have multiple layers, work surprisingly well. Um, they are not as effective as N95s at the, the, those really small sizes, but the, the virus is probably in more of the larger aerosols that the cloth masks can block pretty well. There's been some reporting though that, that um, cloth masks may actually be counterproductive or, or not constructive. Um, What's the latest on the cloth masks and the science of, of you know, behind, behind them? The idea that a cloth mask could be harmful is just wrong. Um, at worst, a cloth mask would be ineffective, meaning that it wouldn't block any droplets. But really, we see that even fairly thin, flimsy fabrics are able to block the larger droplets quite easily. Um, the latest is that... Uh, you know, again, multiple layers and a denser weave of fabric is good. We did some testing over the weekend on neck gaiters because there was some controversy over them. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that even if we take a thin neck gaiter and we fold it over into a double layer, it was able to block over 90% of droplets and aerosols um, down to a size of half a micron. Um, where, uh, again, we're covering the size range that we think is important for transmission. So what about the filtration and um, your suggestion for large indoor spaces and um, homes or apartments? Um, what should folks be doing to ensure that their air quality um, is, is, uh, is, healthy and you know that that the chemistry and within the within their homes is is not really um conducive to uh sort of collecting virus in uh, public buildings what we're looking to do is to remove the 
indoor air, remove any virus from the indoor air and keep it from building up in the air. There are a few different ways of doing that. The easiest is by opening doors and windows to promote more natural ventilation, more of the outdoor air coming in, and that replaces um, stale air in which virus might have been accumulating. The second thing you can do is if you do have an HVAC system, heating, ventilation, or air conditioning system, there are settings uh, often involving kind of adjusting dampers in the system to bring in more outdoor air and use less recirculated air. The third thing you can do is that in those HVAC systems, they often use filters. Uh, you may have seen them as the rectangles with kind of a cardboard frame and some filter material. Those come in various different qualities. And if you can upgrade from whatever you have to a higher quality, they're rated by MERV numbers, M-E-R-V. If you can get up to a MERV 13 filter, then it's removing 80% of droplets, aerosols, particles, virus that might be in the air. And then the fourth thing you can do is to get a portable air purifier with a HEPA filter, and that will remove virus from air that passes through that machine. And do you recommend that to folks who have particular kinds of uh, ventilation within their houses or apartments, or do you think across the board, folks should be investing in those kinds of air purifiers? Well, the, the ventilation question and air purification question, I think applies more to public buildings. In our own homes, um, we're, you know, we're routinely exposed to the people in our bubble who we live with. So I think it's less important unless you're having lots of people over to your house, which I don't think is a great idea at this time. But in, uh, in public areas, uh, the place where the air purifiers come into play, they should be kind of a considered a supplement or if you can't do any of the other things I mentioned, let's say it's an interior room in a building and it's poorly ventilated and you don't have any HVAC in there um, or you don't know anything about it and you still have to use that room, um, that's where an air purifier can be helpful. What do we not know about the airborne transmission that we're that you and colleagues are still investigating that you would like to know in the coming weeks and months? I think we would like to know what fraction of transmission occurs through the air versus through contaminated surfaces or by in close contact if uh, large droplets spray onto your eyes, nose, or mouth. But that's a tough question. People have been studying that for decades for the flu, and we still don't know the answer to it. So, uh, but still, if the closer we can get to that question, um, the the better able will be a the better able we are to focus on um, reducing transmission by directing our attention and resources to the most effective actions. What's the process from your discipline and other disciplines that might collaborate with you in, in, in other fields within science to find the answer to that question? How are we going to eventually know the answer to that question? You know, the, the way to answer that question, the gold standard is considered a randomized controlled trial, but those are huge, unwieldy, and really unethical at this point because you'd have to purposely infect people with virus or take people who are infected and expose um, other individuals to them, and we just can't do that. So there's, you can do studies in animal, animals models to uh, try to get at this question. 
if you have enough information about environmental contamination of the virus in air and on surfaces and how people are interacting in that environment, you might be able to experimentally get at that question through observations. But again, it's, it's challenging. And, and how do you so far amidst this pandemic, what is the process for uh, collaborating with uh, folks in infectious disease or immunology or virology um, to, to be able to produce an authoritative understanding of, of the aerial transmission, the airborne transmission question, and, and then um, sort of the uh, thinking about the, the specific immune reactions to um, airborne transmission versus other forms of transmission. Is that important to know or not as much? Well, I've been collaborating with people in different disciplines on this question for many years because it does require expertise from a lot of different fields. I think, um, you know, if you can, people reach out to me or I reach out to others, we meet each other at conferences or just a cold email sometimes or an introduction through someone else. I've even met people on Twitter who I've ended up collaborating with. And um, I think the most important thing is to, you have to spend some time getting to understand the other person's field and language, being open-minded and also humble about what you know and what you don't know. And then to answer your question about immunity, I don't know if it would, uh, how, what role that might play in, a, in different, mo different routes of transmission. And, you know, when you think of the airborne question, it's something that I raised with uh, Jose Luis Jimenez recently, one of your collaborators and, and colleagues on Twitter talking about this subject. Um, what is your concern about the pandemic era? This is not going to just be a single year event. And the, and the related cost of pollution and air quality. Um, you know, the there were visualizations of the decline of pollutants in the air as a result of business shutdowns in, in the early stages. Um, but there will likely be some long-term ramifications for air quality, both indoor and outdoor. Uh, what is your, what do you anticipate that, that being? I think with indoor air quality, we will see improvements because this attention to ventilation um, should help us improve our indoor air quality. Although I have a caveat there, um, you know, our buildings, we've made them much tighter because of concerns about energy conservation for heating and cooling. It's easier to continue cooling the same air that's already cooled rather than to bring in hot air from outside and having to cool it all the way down every time. But at the same time, if the uh, air quality outdoors is bad, if you're in a really polluted area, then maybe you don't want to bring in that outdoor air or you need to treat it more. But I think as a result of the pandemic long-term, there will be more attention um, to indoor air quality. As far as outdoor air quality, you know, with the economic slowdown, of course, emissions have decreased, um, but unfortunately, there's also been um, a move away from public transit as people are trying to avoid crowding. But I think that 
you know, and, and what I, I don't know yet if that's going to lead to more emissions from vehicles. A lot of people are working from home and maybe that will continue. So maybe there will be fewer emissions from, from vehicles. Um, so I guess that those are my thoughts as far as long-term impacts. So it's mixed. The environmental effect indoors can be to enhance the quality of our, of our experience uh, outdoors, depending upon our transportation and travel routines and um, how we comport business going forward that, that may or may not cause a relief for what has been, you know, some decades long um, disregard for the, the longer term environmental health of our communities and, and our world. Um, when, when you think of the reflection now on the pandemic, um, it, it really did seem difficult for the top scientists in this country and, and initially in China and, and elsewhere to accept some of the novelties of this virus in that transmission. Um, were you surprised, at, 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 maybe you disagree with that characterization and if you do say so, but were you surprised about the resistance to accepting that this was very clearly airborne? I was not surprised because I've been studying this for over 10 years and I've seen that resistance or bias against airborne transmission. I think part of it stems from a lack of understanding of how it can happen because we can't see the aerosols that carry the virus and so it's harder for non-experts to understand what's going on. Uh, I think there's also a, a bit of a fear among the, the medical community and infectious disease communities about uh, Acknowledging a disease is airborne because it requires, at least in the healthcare setting, a much higher level of controls for personal protective equipment and, and ventilation of buildings. So uh, again, yeah, I wasn't surprised. I'm actually surprised at how far we've come in the past just five months toward acceptance of the fact that it, it is happening, that the virus is transmitting through the air. There's been more progress, I think, in understanding this route of transmission over the past five months than I've seen over the 10 years that I've been working on this. And do you conclude that it takes an event like the great flu um, when you see in the historical documentation and cartoons and photographs and pictures from the era that uh, police officers and lay people and anybody in the community were wearing masks. I mean, I, I suppose you, you were surprised over the last decade, but if people understood this was going to be the next big one, that they would have taken more um, responsible uh, premeditated action. Yeah, I think that's true because the countries that had experienced the original SARS and MERS were more prepared for this. Um, but you know we did go through the very very many of the same kind of lessons learned in 1918 and uh, unfortunately that's been forgotten because people who were alive then are no longer alive now i think what i hope for the the longer term is that some of the things we've learned in the current pandemic um, we will commit to memory and make the institutional changes necessary to handle a similar outbreak in the future do you think professor that the novelty of this not being flu, being coronavirus, 
and, and having far more uh, fatal results uh, in, in many patients, including perfectly healthy patients. Do, do you think that um, the, the airborne question uh, was distinct here relative to past flu epidemics or pandemics because there is something different about COVID with respect to airborne transmission? The mechanisms, you know, the actual way in which the virus travels through the air um, and, and infects others is going to be the same, really, for almost any virus. And so I think that, you know, what's different about the coronavirus compared to flu is that this is totally novel. There's no pre-existing immunity in the population to any anything like this. There's, maybe there's some, but but not much compared to flu. Um, the the mortality rate, of course, from this is much higher than we've seen in flu in our lifetimes, but I think it's probably in the ballpark of the 1918 pandemic. Do we know just the, the, the as a purely scientific matter yet the difference in terms of you know how much more likely something was to be airborne with COVID versus you know past flus? We don't know that the answer to that question yet, but you know, with the 1918 flu, they they did were doing a lot of the same things: distancing, putting up uh, partitions in hospitals between patients, huge efforts to get people to wear masks. Questions about what's the best kind of mask. There were anti-mask you know demonstrations then, um, so it, it was probably. I think you know I, I'm not a historian. But from what I've seen from colleagues and, and other places, it, it does seem like we're going through a lot of the same questions. And so it probably was similarly airborne in uh, 1918 as, as we're seeing now. You know, and, and just as a, an expert on air, <laughs> what were you focused on in your studies prior to, to COVID? Well, I'm, I'm curious what, what was interrupted and, and what will you return to? Or was it really just overlapping with this idea of the transmissibility of infectious disease in, in the air? Yeah, that's a great question. So right, you know, because of the pandemic, we've transitioned to evaluating masks and face coverings and helping local hospitals um, and, and really trying to get the word out about the importance of airborne transmission. So right before this, I was actually working on the survival of influenza virus and another virus in aerosols and droplets as a function of humidity and really trying to understand kind of at a very small level of why does the virus survive better in some conditions than others. And, and you know, that question is still very relevant. Um, do you think that we can develop some kind of game plan um, that would be utilized in the future when it comes to airborne viruses. You know, this pandemic is going to be with us for more than 2020. Uh, but but how, what does that look like to you, Professor? Kind of, the, you've described the steps in the immediate term that indoor establishments, uh, homeowners might take. Um, 
but you know, just sort of framing this holistically, thinking about a, a scientific and, and public health regimen for air quality, what would you like to see federally um, and, and how can we start to develop those standards for more transparent and coherent federal guidance for the future? Yeah, we've learned a lot in fits and starts in this pandemic. And I hope that if something like this were to arise in the future, we'd be quicker to provide federal guidance on mask wearing and, and have a coherent, cohesive messaging on that uh, so that we don't end up with the situation we're in now. I'm hoping that, you know, longer term, because now there is, we are developing a culture of mask wearing in this country. I'm hoping that we can readily adopt that again in the future if we need to. Uh, I think people understand now the importance of distancing. We're starting to pay attention to ventilation. And I think if you know something like this happens again in the future, we'll have that, hopefully have that memory and be able to react faster and um, prevent the type of, of explosive growth in cases that we've seen this time. And, and what about um, the sort of intersection of a counteroffensive for the spread of diseases in the air, but also coupling that with protective policies for the environment in general. I and mean, what, what does that look like um, in an era when in an administration that has um, removed the, the legislative and executive steps for environmental regulation. Um, what would you like to see potentially a, a, a new administration or a new um, EPA do when it, when it comes to the whole range of um, threats to our environmental health? Yeah, I think you, you hit it with those last two words, environmental health. Right now, um, we're a bit frag fractured in that the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, regulates the environment. And then, you know, we have the National Institutes of Health and Centers for Disease Control focusing on health. But uh, I think it's important to try to bring those two little closer together and to consider things more holistically. So, for example, you know, we have very tight buildings now because of our interest in energy conservation, which is a, a very good reason and protection of the environment, right? Because if we have leakier buildings, then we have to heat and cool more and that that consumes more energy and really results in more emissions of greenhouse gases, for example. But we need to think about that, you know, the, the buildings and our indoor environments in a more holistic way so that we're not, not optimizing just for one thing at a time, but that we try to consider multiple variables like the, you know, our outdoor environment and indoor, indoor environments and people's health at the same time. But that's, that's hard to do. It's hard to do, but if there was one way as a final question, Professor, to mainstream the kind of environmental consciousness through a new regulatory, um, you know, a new regulatory scheme or environment, what, what would you say is, is most important in, in reference to air quality, your, your area of expertise? Uh, what specific actions, if any, need to be taken? And, and, and again, are they, 
are they connected to disease prevention? Um, you know, more broadly, uh, when you talk about pollution in the air, uh, but I'm, are there are there immediate steps that you think ought to be taken um, to undo some of the deregulation the past few years, um, or beyond just the deregulation the past few years, cumulatively what what has gone on these past decades? Are are there are there specific things um, with regard to you know certain chemicals? Um, that you know are most concerning to you that you would like to to see our country take action on you know wholly not just on a on a state by state basis i would like to see some kind of um mechanism to to account for the environmental costs of of air pollution because you know we know that particulate air pollution of course has uh is responsible for premature deaths of tens of thousands of people in this country and millions around the world. Um, also with carbon dioxide emissions, you, you know, exacerbating climate change. Um, I think we need to put a price on that and have the polluters pay rather than have the general public pay in terms of health costs. And this can be done in a revenue neutral way for carbon dioxide, for example, so that, um, you know, there's a, a carbon fee and then you return that or reduce taxes on the other side so that uh, you know once you when you implement we've seen this with previous types of air quality regulation um, uh, there was something called a cap and trade program for sulfur dioxide emissions and it resulted once you put a price on things um, companies and individuals get very good about uh, trying to minimize their costs and for the for the cap and trade program, we were able to reduce emissions of that pollutant for far lower total costs than expected or than by other regulatory means. So I think the, the key is to, to putting a, a price on this and figuring out a way to make those who, who cause the problem um, um, you know, more responsible for paying for it. Lindsay Marr, really appreciate your insight today. Professor of Engineering at Virginia Tech, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks.